Well, good morning again, everyone. Welcome to Sailorville. If you brought a Bible with you, you can find 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We are embarking on a journey for an unshakable faith. And so we started last week this introduction, which we will conclude this morning, to this series on Christian theology, which is what this is all about 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In fact, I think we have it in the NLT. So here's how, here's how, I hope you will put up with a little more of my foolishness, the Apostle Paul writes. Please bear with me. For I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. Now he's talking to the Corinthians who had this propensity to just sort of listen to anybody and swallow up all kinds of theology and whatever else they can get a hold of. So he says, but I fear, and the Greek word for fear means to be startled. In fact, it was used for scaring off a flock of birds. That's the house. This is how concerned Paul is for these Corinthians. I fear, Phobos, that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. You happily put up with whatever anyone else tells you. That's the problem here. Even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach, or a different spirit, i.e. Holy Spirit, than the one you received, or a different kind of gospel than the one you believed This is a very serious accusation that Paul was leveling against the Corinthians. That they were just sort of being thrown about by every wind of doctrine. Believing just about anything. Because, you know, if if he sounds good, if he's a charismatic preacher, or, you know, there looks like a good product out there, they would swallow it up. C.S. Lewis gave this warning many years ago. He said, if you do not listen to theology, what will not That will not mean that you have no ideas about God. It will mean that you have a lot of wrong ones, unquote. All of us, as we said last week, have theology. We all have a theology. That is, what we believe about God, what we believe about God and his ways. All of us have that. The only question is, do you have Right theology. You've heard the term orthodox or orthodoxy. When you, when you hear that term orthodoxy, sometimes you might be thinking old school. You might be thinking, uh, you know, theologians of the past. I mean, you might have, I don't know what conjures up in your mind. It's actually a very good word. Orthodox or orthodoxy basically means right worship, right thinking, right doctrine. That's, it's that which is right. And so, We are on this quest for getting our hearts and our minds right with God, our understanding of God, so that when all of the storms and the changes and the troubles of life come upon us, we will be ready. We will have an unshakable faith. The test of our understanding and knowledge of God comes when the bottom drops out in our life and everything shakes around us. And we talked last week from that scripture in Hebrews where God says, I'm going to come someday, I'm going to shake everything and the heavens and the earth so that that which cannot be shaken may remain. And 
then he concludes that little portion in Hebrews chapter 12 by saying, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. It's only when we have an unshakable faith, a right thinking, that our worship becomes acceptable to God. What I just said might be the only thing some of you need to hear this this morning. Because if you don't think right about God, then you're not worshiping him. Not correctly, anyway. Remember, Jesus said, in vain they do worship me. Remember that? Teaching doctrines and commandments of what? Of what? Of men. So here are three Hebrew boys. They're very young. And uh, the great king Nebuchadnezzar has erected this massive idol in the plains of Dura. And he tells everybody, when you hear, when we strike up the band, you bow down and you worship the idol, everything's cool. You don't do it, I've got, I've got this place stoked for you to go into. And then, so by the thousands, they're bowing down. You, I got to bow down? Sure, I'll bow down. Except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who do not. They get called out. They get called before Nebuchadnezzar. And he gives them another chance. Obviously, you had wax in yours. You didn't hear it well. Here you go. We're going to strike up the band, blah, blah, blah. Bow down. Everything will be fine. And then they respond with this. I mean, if you look, if you're familiar with the account, and a lot of us love the fact at the end, Jesus is in the fiery furnace with them, and that's, that's amazing. But this is the, this, it's this that shows that these three individuals had an unshakable faith. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If be, if this be so, that is, if we're going to get chucked into the furnace, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, there's those three epic words, but if not, Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. That but if not tells us they had an unshakable faith. They had an unshakable faith because they had a good theology of God. They didn't have any assurance that they wouldn't go up and smoke when they were thrown in. In fact, not until they were thrown in did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have any assurance. God did not tell them, hey, don't worry about it. This is going to be really cool, so just hang in there. He didn't tell them that. But their unshakable faith knew that they, they knew they could rely on God regardless. And what you, sometimes you haven't considered, those of you who are familiar with the story, that, that is that th- untold thousands of people were compelled to bow down to that idol who had no intention in their heart to worship that idol. Jewish people, I mean. But unlike Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their theology was weak. Just like some of yours, perhaps. There are times when everything around us will shake except our faith. If you have a right view of God. So, as I said last week, if you listen to yourselves in conversation, you'll be able to tell where your theology... I, I, I'm appalled sometimes. An individual who will agree with what's on paper... That's sound and right. And then what's coming out of their mouths is anything but sound theology. Remember what we said? And many of you picked up the book. We have many of them more out there today. Tozer's line. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
Believe it, that's a true statement because it will determine whether we really worship God in spirit and in truth. Theology is the study of God. That's what it is. It's, it's simply what you end up believing about God and about his ways in our life. And we suggested last week there are several factors we need to consider as we embark on this mission of studying major aspects of Christian theology. And see, these, these factors are vital to our journal, journey. rather. So the first one we saw last week, and I'm just going to sort of, sort of recapitulate a few of these things. The truth factor, that's the first one. Truth. Remember Isaiah said to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. I think we have the scripture, but we didn't get it up. But anyway, that's what Isaiah said. If they don't speak according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. Most of us are familiar with First or Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen, right? All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And then this, that the man of God may be competent. Some some of your Bibles say complete, and because familiarity sometimes breeds contempt. Sometimes it just blinds us to the obvious. Look at that the man of God may be competent or complete. The word means to be fitted, to be ready. God's word does that. It readies us for what? Every good work. And I might add everything that Satan, the world, and the flesh can throw at you. How important is it that the truth factor be a part of the quest for an unshakable faith. I'll tell you how important it is. In Psalm 145, which is one of the greatest theologies of God in the Psalms, next to Psalm 139, right, Chris Rock? Anyway, he loves Psalm 139. He can't get it. I think he reads it like every day, four times a day. He quoted it up here once. He's, it, he's, he's got a point. Psalm 145, though, is, is powerful stuff, too. And it says in the middle of Psalm 145, the Lord is near to all who call upon him. Now watch this. To all who call upon him in truth. That's the truth factor. God is near to those who come to him in the way in which we must come to him. And we have to come to him through Jesus, right? And by way of truth. So the truth factor. Then there's the Holy Spirit factor. We saw that as well. And we cited 1 Corinthians 2, where it says, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Uh, In fact, they're foolishness to him. Neither can he understand them because spiritual things are discerned by way of the Spirit or the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit keeps us as a church, as well as individuals, but as a church, it keeps us, he keeps us from becoming like any other institution that operates on man's on man-centered business models that makes sense you know in a world that produces you know multiple year plans and whatnot but if we're not careful we will literally factor divine providence out of all of our thinking <laughs> 
And we start to just, we, we come up with the plan, we work the plan, and you don't even need the Holy Spirit. This is the reason why wise cracks have been made in the past that if the Spirit of God were to leave the church today, it would just go on operating like it always has because it really doesn't need the Holy Spirit. This is foolishness. If we're going to understand good theology, much less live a life that pleases God and present acceptable worship to God, function as a church for God, we must be led by God. By the way, what is the business of the church? In Acts chapter 13, just as the church was to embark on this Gentile thrust, here's what it tells us. It says, now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menan, a member of the uh, the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now watch this. This is the group together. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then they went back to what they were doing before. After fasting, they were already doing that, but they went back to fasting and praying, which would involve worship. They laid hands on them, sent them off. The next verse says, uh, if, if we were to go to verse 4, it says, Then being sent out by the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that sent these guys out. This is important for us to get a grip on because if you follow the Holy Spirit's leading in the Apostle Paul's life after this, it's not like a bed of roses is laid out for him here. The Spirit of God was leading, but it would be rough going for them. Just the same, the church was moving on. It was advancing against all kinds of obstacles. Now, I'm a wrestler, or I was a wrestler. Dan Gable, the greatest wrestler of all time, gold medalist, 1972 Olympics, was interviewed during that time. Now, if you've, if you've ever listened to interviews of Dan Gable, it's not like he's the greatest interview in the, interviewer in the world. But they asked him what his, what his whole methodology of wrestling was, and he said this, he said, well, he said, I shoot, I score. He shoots, I score. (laughs) Hey, by the way, no basketball player could ever say that. The idea with Dan Gable was, I'm always advancing, whether I'm the one just thrusting forward or it's coming against me. I shoot, I score. He shoots, I score. We're always moving forward. That's the idea here. We need to be passionate about being led by God. There are so many weird understandings of the Holy Spirit that are out there. Has anybody here ever heard a weird story about the Holy Spirit? Anybody here? Just the, I was thinking about this just the other day, about how the Holy Spirit works, and just meditating on this, and I, I, was, I was in one part of our house, and I walked. It was a beautiful day. The winds were open. The wind was blowing. I walked to our bedroom, just thinking about the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, as I approached the bedroom, the door was open. I kid you not, a $10 bill blew out right in front of my foot. 
I'm not kidding. Followed by a $5 bill. Followed by a $20 bill. I stood there and waited. I thought maybe 100 would show up. <laughs> so uh, I, reached, I reached down, picked him up, and I, and I got on my phone. I texted my wife, who wasn't home at the time, and I said, I've been thinking about the Holy Spirit and his work in our lives. And I've come down to one of two conclusions from this experience. One, God says, here's 35 bucks for you. <laughs> and the other was, Put the money back on your wife's dresser and shut the window. <laughs> That's what I did. <laughs> the Holy Spirit, for all the things he does, and we will see that, Lord willing, in the days to come, It's not all about just giving you great feelings and wonderful experiences. He, people say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit will lead you only, you know, wherever, wherever you are in God's plan, that's the safest place to be. Whoever said, where did the Bible ever say that's the safest place? It might be the most dangerous place to be. But if God led you there, thank God for that. Either way. When I see the Spirit of God at work, it's like what Dan Gilbert says. I shoot, I score. He shoots, I score. The the kingdom of God is advancing. Always advancing. It's like the Apostle Paul. He's chained up, and he he writes to the Philippians. He says, you know, I'm chained up, and, and this Roman guard is watching me. And the rest of us, if we were writing this, pray for me. You know, I'm not getting good food. And we come up with the most ridiculous prayers for people under duress. Paul says, hey, but you know what? The whole Roman Praetorian Guard, Praetorian Guard is hearing the gospel now. I shoot, I score. He shoots, I score. In Paul's mind, I don't care if the devil himself is coming after me. I'm going forward with God. And that's what the Spirit of God does in our lives. He pushes us forward, even against the obstacles, so that we will have a faith that is unshakable. There is a humility factor. And we'll quickly go through these, but the humility factor is we study Christian theology, basically, you know, the Bible says, knowledge puffs up. Love, what? Builds up. We need to be like David who said in Psalm 131, Lord, my my eyes are not lofty. My heart is not haughty. I don't... uh, Give myself towards great things or things too profound for me. Surely I have quieted my heart like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Have you ever read that? That's a humble man. That's a humble woman. And that means, I mean, that means we're ready to have aha moments. I remember reading years ago about a about this guy wrote about sitting next to in a homiletics class, that's the art of preaching in a seminary, sitting next to one of the most esteemed theologians in the world. Sat right next to him. The, the theologian was in a was literally sitting in a desk while he, one of the students was preaching. And the guy who was writing about it said he heard the theologian, sort of under his breath, but sort of intentionally letting everybody else kind of hear too that were around him. As this guy was preaching, the theologian said, Oh, I've never seen that before. 
And the guy was so impressed, not with the message, but with the, with the humility of the theologian. I would say to you, I'm talking to those of you who've known Jesus Christ for more than five years or ten. And some of you have known him for 30 or 40 years, and you can't remember the last aha moment you had with God. Let me tell you something. If that's true, you are a proud man. You are a proud woman. Write it down. You are proud. We, as followers of Jesus Christ, should have one aha moment after another as God reveals himself to us in his word. And so stay humble. Like Warren Wiersbe said, our minds are like parachutes. They work better when they're open. So the humility factor. And then there's the bias factor, very closely related. Remember, you know, the, there's Proverbs. That, there's a proverb that says, the, the simple believe every word, but the prudent look well to his goings. There's another Proverbs, I think eight, chapter 18 says, uh, the fool does not delight in understanding, only that his heart may discover itself. Have you ever read that? That's a person who just, you already know what you believe. You know, you, you got it all, it's all boxed up, it's right there. You know, I've got my theology, I went to school, maybe I didn't go to school, I've studied, I've read group, you know, I've read this theology, Piper's theology, Gruben's theology, whoever, Ryrie's theology, and I mean, whatever, and you got it. And so we form these biases. It's like the seminary professor, I think I mentioned to it last, uh, the Dallas seminary professor, John Hanna. Used to say as he began his class, a little tongue in cheek, I'm going to teach you many wonderful things about theology and history, but it doesn't really matter since you're just going to go home and believe what mommy and daddy taught you anyway. And then you go on teaching. Because he knew that there was a bias that many of us have. Do you know anybody? Does anybody here know of anybody who has a tendency to wear clothing that doesn't fit them? Don't point any fingers here, okay? You know, it's either too tight or it's way too loose. I remember when uh, I see Mal Va- or, uh, Val McIlvain here. Her dad uh, gave me a suit when I was a student. I looked like Mambo the Clown up here with that thing. I was like three sizes too. I'm surprised they didn't give me giant shoes to go with it. But so I quit wearing it because it was too big. And then I had another. My brother had given me a suit. It, had, it was sort of a pastel plaid. I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, but nobody else thought it was very cool. And uh, one day, my, uh, my first pastor came. He was preaching at the Bible college, and I, uh, he was the most encouraging guy I'd ever been with in my life. And we went to lunch. We were about seven or eight of us around. We are talking back and forth, and he's laughing. Hey, numbers, I got a question for you. He said, what is it, pastor? He says, where'd you get that clown outfit you're wearing? He asked me that in front of everybody. Last time I ever wore that clown outfit. That's the problem with some of your theology. You might be comfortable with it, but if it doesn't fit the truth of God, you need to get rid of it. You need to think differently. That takes humility. That takes a willingness to deal with your inner biases. And so if we acknowledge that we're given to biases, we're on our way. We really are. We're on our way to growth. Here's the fifth thing, the mind factor the mind factor. This is, remember Jesus said, you know, here is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your, say it, your mind. This is how R.C. Sproul put it. We live in what may be the most anti-intellectual period in the history of Western civilization. We must have passion indeed, hearts on fire for the things of God, but that passion must resist with intensity the anti-intellectual spirit of this world, unquote. By the way, that's how cults rise up. Cultists prey on ignorance and gullibility of the masses. And some of the masses are right here in this church. You who have checked out intellectually and you bend perhaps toward the experiential. And Solomon has a word for you in Proverbs 19. He says, he says this, he says, Desire without knowledge is not good. Enough said? Desire without knowledge is not good. Our goal in this series is understanding, knowing, loving, and enjoying God. Now and forever. Not just when we get to heaven. Don't you think we should enjoy God now? Jesus, on the night before he died, he prayed to his father. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. No, gnosko, that's the word which means to know experientially. Paul would follow with his famous statement in Philippians 3, I want to know you, and I want to know the power of your resurrection. I want to know how to fellowship with the sufferings that you suffer with. So, this, again, the information that we get with using our minds should lead to worship. It should lead to joy. It should lead to a deepening of our faith. And it will surely help us not to come undone, unraveled, when everything else around us seems to be doing exactly that. So, let me just hasten to the last thing here. Uh, second from last thing. The application factor. The application factor. And I just affectionately want to call this the Abe factor, okay? So I put that up there too. Uh, Abe is known around this office of uh, hearing all kinds of theology and saying, okay, well, so what does that mean? What's that going to do for me? How's that going to work in my life? And he means it. Well, this is our quest. We're, we're this, a quest for an unshakable faith. And the, the Jews of earlier days used to say, I know, or rather, I, I, I know, therefore I do. The Jews never had this idea where you just sat and studied, period, without application. Remember what Paul said to the Philippians? He, he said, whatever you have learned and received, and heard, and seen in me. Put into practice. Make it applicable in your life. What difference does it make? That's the application. How does this work in my life? You know, we, we put to rest the Roman series at the end of a doctrinal section, a theological section. And now we're going to pick it up in a practical section in Romans chapter 12. I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your, it's your reasonable service. This is the, 
the practical outcome to having a good theology. That's the idea here. And the reason I point this out is because this goes back as far as we could go. I don't have the verses up here for you, but Ezekiel might have been one of the greatest, if not the greatest preachers of all of the Old Testament preachers. He was the most demonstrative, lying half naked, doing all kinds of stuff, chopping up hairs, doing this, burning some, doing this to that. He was so demonstrative, and yet he was also a great preacher. In fact, he had to be reminded by God himself that the people were coming to him in, in Ezekiel 30. The people are coming to you. They're always coming to you because your, your messages are kind of like music to their ears. They love to hear you preach. But they don't do what you say. In fact, he repeats himself to Ezekiel. They, they loved great preaching. But they just go back to their homes and never apply what they had just learned. Good theology that produces an unshakable faith always puts into practice what it learns. Otherwise, it's bad theology. You give me a sound mind that doesn't do anything about it, that's bad theology. Just as, just as it's bad theology if all you do is have a do-do-do-doer mindset without knowledge. you got to have the two together. Remember what Luther said? We are saved by faith alone. But faith that saves is never alone, right? It's never alone. We need to have a theology of works, not, to, not for salvation, but from salvation. Work out your salvation, right, with fear and trembling. Let what took place inside of you work its way out with application. And then lastly, this is where we ended up last week, the Jesus factor. Christian theology must always lead to Jesus. Remember what Jesus said to his enemies you pre, you know, you, you know, you search the scriptures and in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. But they weren't seeing it. Christ, all theology must eventually make its way to Jesus. Who said in the last book of the Bible, I am the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, who is who was and who is to come, the Almighty, Jesus Christ, the bookends. He he is the very bookends of our faith. And he gives us purpose in life, does he not? He gives us reason for living. He is the logos, the word. That phrase literally in John 1 means reason for life. That's Jesus Christ. The Jesus factor. You don't get there, you, you don't have good theology. So I'm sitting with my family about 20 years ago in a Hardee's. It's getting late at night. Place is about ready to close down. The manager comes up to me. Says, hey, we got a bunch of chicken here left over. I'll give it to you at half price if you want it. I had a big family. It was pretty tempting, except we were already full. I said, say, thanks anyway, but uh, it was just him and our family. And I said, what's your name? He says, his name's Lynn. I said, Lynn, what's your purpose in life? And Lynn hung his head and said, I don't have any purpose. I'm just taking up space. I said, well, 
then I have something to give you. And we began to meet together, and Len trusted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. And because of the truth of God that says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, it shouldn't have surprised me when I walked in today, having not seen Lynn in 18 years, and there he was standing in the hallway. And I recognized you, didn't I, Lynn? He came all the way down here just to see the guy who led him to Christ that long ago. We can say hi to Lynn and his wife, Joel, and they're right. Let's give them a round of applause. Good to have you here. The Jesus factor is what all theology must end up with because he's the only one who can give us purpose for living, purpose for suffering, purpose for everything that's happening in your life right now, good, bad, or otherwise, in our quest for an unshakable faith. And if you don't know Jesus, you don't have purpose in life, much less beyond. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to come together on this Father's Day. Bless the dads, but bless us all, Lord. May we be passionate about these factors that go into our quest for an unshakable faith. I pray for those who are here today who would admit, Lord, my mind is not in it. Help me, Lord, to engage in your truth. Help me, Lord, to be following your Holy Spirit's leading wherever he may send me. May I lay aside my biases and be a humble man, humble woman, accepting your truth. And, oh, God, I pray right now for those in our midst here who have never truly bowed their heart to Jesus. Oh, they may have religion. They've been baptized or confirmed. But in their heart, they've never truly repented of their sin and placed their faith in the one who died and rose again for them. And if that's you as we pray, if that's your heart, you'd say, that's me. I've I've really never factored Jesus himself into my life. I've never trusted him. Would you trust him right now? Would you place your faith completely in him? And please, Lord, give the rest of us a faith that's unshakable because it's based on you, not on ourselves, not on our experiences, good, bad, or otherwise, but on you and on your son, Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.